So we're on part two of A Table and a Tower. And uh, last week we talked about the Table of Nations. And I'd just like to do a quick review, kind of an overview of what we were looking at. Last week we looked at that Table of Nations and saw that it could easily be divided into three sections according to uh, the sons of Noah. Japheth, uh, in verses 2 to 5. Ham, verses 6 through 14, the largest section. And then Shem, uh, verses uh, 21 through 31. And there have been a lot of attempts at identifying what these genealogies represent. Uh, The Moody Atlas Bible of Lands uh, explains that these attempts to give understanding have shown some interesting ways of interpreting them. The section of the Table of Nations have been classified according to biology, climate, apologetics, ethnology, mathematics, social politics, and geography. Each one of those sections has been applied to this Table of Nations to try to understand what they're actually saying. And biology, well, that's based on similar genealogical uh, tables that are unearthed in Mesopotamian archaeology. So they take the genealogies and they compare them uh, under biology. Climate, Ham is construed to mean hot, and so Hamites are classified as those nations that lived near the equator. Apologetics, well, that's the chapter demonstrating that the Hebrews, Eberites, Eber, the descendants of Eber, were related to the world's major nations. Ethnology, well, seeing a chapter as providing a complete anthropological register of mankind, taking the names and figuring out what nations that they represent. Mathematics, this is an interesting one. So the 70 nations of the descendants of Noah represent the dispersal of the whole of humanity at that time. In Shem, you have 26 nations represented. In Ham, 30. And in Japheth, 14, coming to a grand total of 70. Now, relating to numerical values of 7 and 10 in the Old Testament, that's very important. It's something called numerology. Okay, There is such a thing as biblical numerology. I would highly caution you going into that area. Because it's like a bottomless pit. You can go a lot of places with numerology. But there are some interesting patterns that are seen in the scripture. Um, And as I said, be cautious. But you can see some certain patterns. Uh, And they they can yield some insight that doesn't come right out and be stated in the, in the text itself. Like the numbers 7 and 10 symbolize complete li- uh, completeness and uh, perfection. 7, well, there's seven days of creation. And the word created was used seven times uh, for the creative work of God in the creation account. And there are seven days in the week with the Sabbath being on the seventh day. Completion, perfection, Okay. Um, We also have 10. Well, the phrase God said is repeated 10 times in a creative account. These are, you can't refute it. These are true. And God gave how many commandments? 
Ten Commandments. And, of course, the Passover lamb was selected on the tenth day of the first month. Now, I'm only giving you a smattering of these things. There, there's all sorts of numerology that cover these areas. Forty is also a, a big number, right? Uh, it, it, it symbolizes probation or trial. Well, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, Moses' life can be divided up by 40s, right? He left Egypt at 40. And he was on the mountain for how many days? 40 days. And even Jesus, he was tempted 40 days, right? So these numbers do come. They are repeated and so forth. But I would just really caution you. And maybe for just the sake of argument today, let's just stick with the 70 nations which comprised the nations of the world at that time. And as we find in 1132, it says, excuse me, uh, 1032, it says, these are the families of the sons of Noah according to the genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So just suffice it to say that that was a categorization of all the nations that came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So due to the fact that the table includes the names of individuals, various cities, and certain peoples as well as nations, it leaves a determinative method of evaluation extremely nubious. It's, you can't get your arms around it by just saying, these are just nations, because there's people's names there. You can't do it by, these are just descendants because there's nations listed and, and places, geographic places. It's, it's just difficult. Suffice it to say that Genesis 10 does clarify that the earth's repopulation after the flood had Noah's three sons as a sole progenitors. Okay? That's, that's what you take away from this. All nations came from these men. The consistent phrase at the end of each of the genealogies is indicative of God's regard for the nations of the world. We just sang about the nations. It is a regard that stretches all the way through the Bible. Nations play a big part all the way through the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation. In Acts 17.26, there's a great summation. It says, And he, God, made from one man, that's Adam actually, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So I said last week, we're all one human race. There aren't multiple races. There is the angelic race, but I'm just talking about us here on earth as mortal beings. We are one human race. There are not many races. There are many ethnicities. But we're one race. And we all come from one source. So in a real broad sense, we are all brothers and sisters. Okay? We're all part of the family of man. Now keep in mind that Moses is narrowing the focus for the Israelites to anticipate the seed of Abraham. So in our series on foundations, right, we've come from the creation and then we came all the way to the flood. And, I mean, it's a brand new startup again with Noah and his three sons. But really, what, what 
God is doing through Moses' writing here now is he's getting us ready to be focused on one man and one of those 70 nations, okay? And that's Israel. Uh, That's why uh, uh, Moses is writing this. You see, Abraham is introduced right after the Tower of Babel. And we see that through the genealogy of Shem, Abraham was from the line of Shem. And that Abraham will bring God's blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. We studied that when we talked about the Abrahamic covenant or God's promise to Abraham. Now, there may be something said about the fact that Moses relates that there were 70 nations in the table of nations because that number is considered to represent totality, as I said, or completion when used in the Torah. And, and, and this is all the nations find their ultimate origin in the three sons of Noah. Now listen to this, okay? And as we keep in mind this number of 70 nations, and out of it, God singles out Abraham and establishes one nation, Israel, through him. So God reminds us at the end of the book of Genesis that Abraham's seed was 70 persons. Just 70 persons. How many persons went into Egypt, right? 70 people. You see that in Exodus 1.5. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. So this declares that one Abraham, taken from the 70, has attained to the number of the nations, 70. His generations turn out to be 70 people going into Egypt. So there is something to be said for this numerology. It's just that don't get lost in it. And don't be adamant that, oh, because these numbers are like this, I have the secret to the Bible or the code that now I understand the deep things that nobody else gets. Careful. There are whole books written about this stuff. So, there's something to be said about the etymology of the names as well. And under the three sons, the names leads us to understand the broadest terms of location and descendants of each one. Geographically, it can be said, broadly, okay, that Europe was given to Japheth, Africa to Ham, and Asia to Shem, in the broadest sense, when you look at the names and where they ended up. So you've got those three areas that are dominant by Japheth and Ham and Shem. Now, taking the nations listed in the account of Genesis 10, many of the nations named in the table are actually present-day enemies of Israel. This is important for us to understand because they're still existent, as is the nation of Israel, which was and was not and is. (laughs) Pretty amazing, actually. So, put in 10.6 is considered to be the modern-day Libya, not a friend of Israel. Cush, in 10.7, is considered to be the modern-day Saudi Arabia. Aram, in 10.22, is considered to be the modern-day Syria. Mizram, 10.6, is considered to be the modern-day Egypt. Right now, Egypt is walking a very, very difficult line. They have to show, uh, I guess a connectedness to the Palestinians, but they're together with Israel 
and don't make any bones about it, they are together with Israel for security against terrorist groups and so forth. You say, well, how does that work? Well, it's difficult. Um, you, want, you want intrigue and, and difficulty and com- uh, just completely complicated, interrelated actions between nations. Look at the Middle East. The Middle East is just insane right now. And it's fun to consider these things. Elam, Persia, 1022, and you compare it in 1 Chronicles 117, it's considered to be Iran. And then you have Sheba and Dedan, uh, 107, which is the modern-day Arabia or Yemen. Okay? And then we have, uh, in 1022, uh, the modern-day Iraq. Now, Nimrod, I said, plays a big part in a table of nations. He takes a great big section. It's almost like a parenthetical that's placed in chapter 10. And he's portrayed as the first man post-flood with world domination as his driving aspiration. And his descendant, King Nebuchadnezzar, paints a vivid picture of how such a maniac behaves. Now, we see that Nimrod establishes these cities and Babel being one of them, and we're going to read about Babel and the Tower of Babel in a moment. But Nebuchadnezzar is, is much more uh, filled in for us to understand how these, these tyrants operate. A.W. Pink, I think you might have heard of him, The Attributes of God, he's famous for that. He pointed out seven similarities between Nimrod and the Antichrist at the end of the age. And I think they're just interesting. So just bear with me a little bit. This is fruits from my study. This is what you pay me for. (laughs) Okay. So Nimrod, his name means rebel, right? Okay. The Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 is called the lawless one. So that's one comparison. Secondly, uh, Nimrod led a confederacy against God the beginning of his kingdom. He was going against God, and he established a kingdom to do that. And then in Revelation 13, 12, the demands of the world are to worship the Antichrist. He makes the earth worship him, the Antichrist. Thirdly, the adjective mighty is used three times to describe Nimrod, and we said that's important. Okay? With the Antichrist... He will be with all power, signs, and lying wonders. 2 Thessalonians 2.9. He, too, is mighty. Fourthly, he sought out followers because he was a mighty hunter. And we saw that that word or that phrase can refer to hunting men, gathering men amongst, uh, to gather men to follow him. And we see that in Revelation 13.6, The Antichrist causes all to be given a mark to identify them as followers of the Antichrist. Nimrod was a king. In Daniel 11.36, we read about the king will do as he pleases. It's all about the Antichrist in Daniel 11.36. And it says he'll do whatever he pleases to do at the time. Sixthly, Nimrod headquartered in Babel, later to be Babylon. Well, obviously, in 
in Isaiah 14.4, we read about the king of Babylon. And if you go to Revelation 17 and 18, it's all about Babylon. Now, there's two, uh, how can I say it? There's two uh, interpretations of the Babylon in those two chapters. One, Babylon is the actual city of Babylon. The other is Babylon is a system. It's a political, religious system. Okay, so don't get confused by that. But... Suffice it to say that the Antichrist has his headquarters in Babylon. And we'll read about that a little bit later, too. Supreme ambition was to make himself a name. That's exactly what Nimrod got these people all together to do, to make themselves a name. Well, the Antichrist displays himself as being God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. So, in a real sense, Nimrod... And, and Nebuchadnezzar, these tyrants, are mere foreshadowing of the Antichrist, the global leader at the end of the age. Now today, I want to turn from the table to the tower in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, we're going to see that the rebellion was planned. It wasn't just, it didn't just come about. It was planned. And secondly, uh, we're going to find out whose will would be done. God's or man's. And thirdly, we see that man is incurably in rebellion against God. It's kind of like our birthright <laughs> as, as human beings to be shaking our fist at God. And then finally, we see God's staggering response to this rebellion at the Tower of Babel. So I'd like to read this section to you right now. It's, it's just nine verses in chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And he said, come, let us make ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. And he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their languages so they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. And therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you wrote in, in, in a narrative form. It's so easy to follow. And it's easy to relate to. We can just envision pictures in our mind as we read this account of the Tower of Babel. And Father, we confess to you that 
as sinners, we do, we do oppose you. And even as saved sinners, we still oppose you, Lord. And we long for that day when we will be free from the tyranny of sin that dwells within us and that we will be free to worship you fully. And we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the very first thing I want to look at is that it was a planned rebellion, verses 2 through 4. There was one language. There was basically one city. It was a conglomeration of cities, um, a network of cities, if you will, but they're viewed as one city, and they all had one determination. There was unity, but it was bad unity. Not all unity is good. Remember that. (laughs) Remember that, people. Not all unity is good. They were rebelling against a clear command from God. Now, there will always be a cause that unites people. And in the case of those of the Tower of Babel, the cause that united them was their intention to free themselves from the obedience to Yahweh's desire for them to multiply in the face of the earth. Instead, they desired to be in one place, the city or conglomerate of cities, and especially the city of Babel. They wanted to settle there. That was in direct opposition. I mean, I can almost hear the commercials that were playing on TV in Babel. And, you know, I can hear Nimrod saying, I support this commercial. Where they said, you know, we want to build this tower and this city and get a name for ourselves. Otherwise, verse 4, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. I can hear Nimrod saying, you don't want to be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, do you? I mean, look at how beautiful this plain of Shinar is. Okay? Mesopotamia, it's, it's, it's where we're supposed to have come from, even in secular history. Okay? It's a cradle of civilization. And, and I can see him just rallying people around. I, come on, gather together here. Gather together. We can be something. We can do something. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what he did. They joined forces under Nimrod in their rebellion. Every movement has a leader. Now, what I like to do is I like to go behind the movement and see who's really pulling the strings, right? It's kind of like, well, never mind, I'm not going there. (laughs) That would be a detail that we don't have to discuss right now. Come see me afterwards. Um, But Nimrod was the leader of this revolt, and Satan was behind Nimrod. Okay? And, and people rallied under his leadership to follow and fulfill his vision, to build a city for themselves, to build a tower whose top would reach up to heaven, and to make a name for themselves. The pride of man reared up to take for themselves what they determined to be best for themselves. And when, whenever Whatever they considered important to their well-being, they pursued it for themselves. Now, contrast this thought of living for yourself with spirituality, because there's a great contrast. The first principle of true spiritual humility is to deny yourself. 
It's totally opposed to our nature. To deny yourself before any new spiritual life becomes a reality for the believer, he must deny himself. And when I use the pronoun he in this sense, I'm talking generically people. It just sounds weird to say people must deny themselves. I'm saying he must, man, mankind, people must deny themselves. Uh, The difference is day and night, and it's the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says that all are, are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins unless something vital happens called regeneration. And the very first thing of a believer's life is to deny themselves. And this denying of self follows us into our lives as we learn to not lean to our own understanding what's good for ourselves, but instead, in all our ways, acknowledge him. Or as the verse before that says, trust in the Lord, or in Yahweh, with all your heart. Are you more concerned with how something might affect you, or are you intentionally acknowledging the Lord in all matters of your life? This is nothing less than complete surrender to God. It's lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life. An undeveloped Christian life will be much more concerned how things affect them personally rather than trusting the Lord with the outcomes and serving him fully no matter what. The people at Babel, they chose to follow their own understanding of the situation, of course being influenced by the great influencer Nimrod, who is being influenced by the even greater influencer, Satan. But it was all for themselves. It was all me, me, me. Now, there will always be a call to gather together into one world. God said, go out and multiply and spread throughout the whole earth. He's got a world vision too, but there's an opposing vision for the world It was attempted here with Nimrod at Babel. It was attempted under Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon. It was attempted under Caesar of Rome. It was attempted by Hitler and Germany. It was proposed by Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, who is meeting, I believe. And it will be attempted under the Antichrist in the future. He wants to gather everybody together, one world. And it will be realized under Jesus Christ as the king of kings. That's the opposing faction. Now the call today is to gather together into community rather than allow for and participate in chaos. However, the community being promoted is consistently not in line with what God says. Inclusivity in the area of gender, sexual orientation, social justice, and shared oppression is the community being offered to people. And to not participate in that community automatically means you are part of the chaos. Mark these words, community chaos, community chaos, community chaos, because they're everywhere present today. You will be seeing it everywhere, and it'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. If you aren't with the status quo that I just mentioned, You are part of the chaos. 
And what do you do with chaos? You've got to bring order to chaos. Is there persecution coming? You betcha. You betcha. I just don't know when. <laughs> I don't know when. But I do know our side wins in the end. Okay? Today, more than at any time in the world history, there's a concerted effort toward the idea of a global community. And the world is more interconnected than at any other time in history. What happens in one nation has a ripple effect throughout the whole world. I remember uh, reading about slash and burn farmers in, in Asia and how um, the, the way they do that is every season uh, before they plant their crops, they, they go in with their machetes and they cut down the forests and the trees and, and then they burn it. And that ash is kind of a, a help to the crops that they plant and everything. It's called slash and burn. But it also causes a lot of smoke, okay? A lot of smoke. And I, the article that I read was, um, it was, I think it was in uh, Oregon? Yeah, I believe, I believe it was over there. But Pacific Northwest was complaining that all the slash and burn farming in Asia was being blown across the Pacific and hitting the Pacific Northwest. And they're up in arms. They've got to stop that slash and burn farming. Well, now we hear all about, you know, climate control and how the climate is affecting everything. And if one nation is doing one thing, causing problems, it's the whole world's problem. Everything's going global, okay? And in such an environment, a single person to oversee the world, Antichrist, is not inconceivable. And it is no coincidence that the future world ruler will have his base of operations, his headquarters, if you will, in Babylon. According to Zechariah 5.11 and Revelation 18, Babylon will be the city for his political and economic control center over the people's and the kings of the earth. Well, the people said, let's build a tower whose top will reach to heaven. Verse 4. Whose top will reach to heaven. It kind of brings a religious element into things. And one man said this. In Nimrod's desire to build a great empire, he realized that the people needed a religious motivation strong enough to overcome their knowledge that God had commanded them to scatter abroad on the earth. You remember I said they're shaking their fists saying, we don't want to scatter, we want to settle. Let's build this tower, let's build this city so that we can make a name for ourselves so we won't have to scatter. So it's not as if they didn't know what God wanted. His tower was one dedicated to heaven and its hosts. Uh, the, the language here is a bit misleading. The top of the tower was surely toward heaven, but it didn't reach heaven. I mean, we're not talking about some incredible thing here that just went all the way up into heaven. Instead, the idea is that the top area of this ziggurat was dedicated to the heavens according to the zodiac. And if you look in any type of encyclopedia, where did astrology come from? Where, where did the zodiac and, and all that come from? You'll see that it goes back to Mesopotamia, and it talks about the Chaldeans, and you're back with Babylon. You're back with Babel. 
All false religions have their source in Babel and in Babylon. All of them. From Babylon, astrology passed to the Egyptians. And you've got the pyramids, and they were built with certain mathematical relationships to the stars. This has been studied. And the Sphinx has astrological significance also because its head is of a woman, which relates to Virgo, and the body of a lion, signifying Leo. And these are the first and the last signs of the zodiac. And God has always abhorred the worship of the stars. Turn with me to um, Isaiah 47, real quickly. I, like you, occasionally look at the, uh, the astrology signs. I don't do it intentionally. I'll be, you know, I'll see something on the sideline of an uh, article that I'm reading, you know. I'm Pisces. I'm also a winter, just in case you guys were wondering. I mean, <laughs> you know, the world is just hilarious, isn't it? It's just hilarious. But anyways, this is God's perception of things. Isaiah 47, beginning in verse 13, and incidentally, this is a lament for Babylon, right? And it says in verse 13, You're wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. He's saying that in jest. Okay, you'll see that at the end here. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who you have trafficked with from your youth. Each has wandered in his own ways. There is that leaning on your own understanding in their own ways. There is none to save you. So even though I told you that I occasionally look and see, oh, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet an interesting person today. Great. Thanks for that tip. All day long, I'm waiting for that interesting person, right? It's a bunch of false... It's false religion, actually, is what it is. And that's its stem. And you don't want to get wrapped up in astrology or the zodiac, even minimally, okay? Flee from that stuff. It had its start in Babylon. Now, whose will will be done? Whose will will be done? Verses 5 and 6. You've got the two wills that are at play here in verses 5 and 6. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, and they have all the same language, and nothing is prevented from them. They are unified. Genesis 1 through 9, 11, 1 through 9, presents two ways, God's way and the way of men. And throughout our study on foundations, we have witnessed how sinful humanity forever imposes its will in opposition to the will of God. Um, I, I just had to laugh. We, we taught for six months uh, to the Taliabo people and did the Chronicles of Redemption. It was stretched out over a six-month period of time. And we just showed repeatedly over and over, man is a rebel, God is a savior. Man is sinful, 
God is holy. Man hates God. God loves men. And, and it just, it's a theme just repeated over and over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. So we get done with that, and we're thinking, what are we going to teach next? And um, somebody suggested, why don't we go to Romans? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's like the same stuff over and over and over again. The whole book of Romans, that's exactly what it teaches. And, and, and so we see it. God first told the, the, the first couple, he says, don't eat of this tree. They ate, right? And, and God prescribed right worship. And Cain brought the fruit of his garden, went against God. Sin is endemic. The wickedness of man is great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. And God brings a flood. And even after the flood, God saw mankind, and he said, the intent of his heart is evil from his youth. This is post-flood. And yet he blessed Noah and his sons, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But sinful men said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? And, and, and don't, don't sit there proudly and say, oh, those fools. <laughs> okay? Because as we're pointing at them, there's three pointing back at us. This is our birthright, people. We are proud beyond measure as human beings. And God has invaded our lives if we're saved. And he's tamping down that pride, helping us to deny ourselves, to not lean on our own understanding, to, to look out for the needs of others more than ourselves. That's what Christ did. I tell you, it's so important. God sees the works of men, and he evaluates them, doesn't he? Verses 5 and 6, Yahweh came down. They built a tower up toward heaven, and God came down from heaven to see what men were up to. His assessment was that due to all men speaking only one language, they are able to join hand in hand and from a community in opposition to his will. And Yahweh allows for the truth that the sinful sons of man, when they, they join together like that in unity, can wreak havoc on earth. And he says, we got to do something about this. we got to do something about this. So man has an incessant habit of rebellion. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another. And that's what human pride is. That's what the pride of these people in Babel was. For themselves, for themselves, for themselves. We will raise up. We will go against what the command is and do what we think is better, what we think will be better for us. Men refuse to give God the glory due his name. Instead, they take it to themselves. And, and they have this self-revelation through creation that God exists. And, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so they actually had preaching that they could remember. And these people were not without witness because God always leaves himself with, with witness. But they were ungrateful to God for life, for their health, for sunshine, for rain, and for food. And they preferred to worship the creation rather than a creator. The stars will tell us what needs to be done. They deliberately turned their backs on the truth about God and their minds were overwhelmed with pride. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't this Babylon which I have built? Magnificent Babylon? 
go eat hay for seven years, Neb. <laughs> I had a teacher in Bible school. Now, this is shortly after the crust of the earth formed, 1975. And he's a short little man. He is British. And he served in China Inland Mission, the mission that um, Hudson Taylor founded. Okay? He was a hero. In our eyes, we sat at his feet. In fact, we sat at the feet of all of our teachers because they were preparing us to do something that was crazy. We are going to go to the other side of the world to people that we had never met and had a monolingual language that nobody knew, and we are going to learn their language, preach the gospel, and establish a church. And so these people, our teachers, had done that, and so we just we took everything we could from him. And um, during World War II, he was interned by uh, the Japanese in, in uh, the Philippines. And uh, I don't know if he was on the Bataan Death March, but he was, he was imprisoned by the Japanese. And he said the whole time, he said, all I could think of was how glorious and great my God is. My God is. And he's looking at these Japanese soldiers and what they're doing to us so inhumane. And he says, and all I could think of is they're just like little bugs. And whenever and if God wishes, he can stomp them out like that. And then he, he, he'd always go, he'd be on his toes, he taught like this, he'd always say, and God could and stomp them out, you know. And I just loved him, loved him to death. Clarence Preeti, Green Leaves and Drought Time, it's a book. And he writes about his experiences there. See, see that's God. That's God. Nimrod, Hitler, where are all these people? They didn't get away from anything, nothing at all. They had a time, but then they were stomped out. Because God can do that. You see, these people worshipped idols and false gods. Babel is a source of idolatry in every form of animistic astrology. Worship has to do with giving our thoughts and our hearts and our resources to serve the object that we worship. Listen to me, okay? Worship comes from the word worth. Worth. What do you value? Primitive people center all their time and energy on appeasing their God, small g. And, and what is it that modern man spends his time doing? What is it that modern man worships instead of God? Let me give you a hint. Time is the proof of interest and the defining attribute of worship. Time is a proof of interest and the defining attribute of worship. Where do we spend our time and our efforts? Can I just repeat something you've probably often heard? There are only two things in this world that are eternal. The Word of God, that means the Bible, and the souls of men. You want to give yourself to something that will have eternal value? Then be involved with the Word of God and the souls of men. You'll be on the right track. You might not get rich. You might not be famous. But you'll be on the right track. So important. What is it that we worship? Now, God's staggering response. going to wrap up here. Verses 7 through 9. He says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. God saw their intentions. God punished their disobedience and rebellion. They chose to settle. God made them to scatter. God's original intention 
was for the people to repopulate the earth by multiplying and migrating throughout the earth. And God accomplished his will for this through divine judgment. He will not share his glory with another. He will not be opposed. The wicked men of Babel said, come, let us make bricks. And again they said, come, let us build a city and a tower. And then in verse 7, God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they'll not be able to understand each other's speech. There was an earlier time in the creation account when God called out to the Trinity and he called them together and he said, come, let us make man. These invitations are very, very important. So much hope then when he made man, so much future before, and how grievous for God to see men now saying, come, let us oppose this one who would command us. Today God's still calling out, isn't he? Come, let us reason together, he says in Isaiah. And though your sins be as scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. I can save you. He says, come unto me, all you who are, 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 are heavy and weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The invitations are marvelous, marvelous, and they're still out there today. Now, there's a godly remnant. The second beginning for man turned out in the same way as the first, sadly. Man shows his sinfulness and rebels against God. God shows his power and holiness and judges sin. And each time God's judgment falls, there is always a remnant of his truth carried on by someone. He's never without witness. And he'll not leave himself without witness. It's, it's a fact that the majority in every generation do turn their back on God. And they choose to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they refuse to bow the knee to their creator. Yet there's a remnant that can be traced through the line of Shem in this situation. Because the rest of chapter 11 shows the line of Shem through which Abraham comes. He's called the father of all the children of Eber. And one of Eber's descendants is none other than Abraham, the son of Terah. And when you trace that line through in the end of 1132, if you can see that. It says the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said, chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and boom, we're off with the narrative of Abram, the father of Israel, right? Father Abraham. Kids sing that song. And it's common knowledge that Abraham is the father of Israel through whom the Messiah was born. And God's remnant is seen in the line of Shem to Abraham and in Abraham all the way to the Messiah. It's such a beautiful story. And it's one cohesive story. It's just one book. And we get lost for the trees sometimes. But when you trace the story, it's just so marvelous. And you go, man, I am dust. I am nothing. It's humbling to see what God can do. So let me wrap up with just two points for you to remember. The amazing truth that God's will will be done in two points. Number one, people are sinful. People are sinful. 
At Babel, men rebelled against God and rejected his blessings to be fruitful and scattered throughout the whole earth. And instead, they settled in a city and built a a tower for themselves to make a name for themselves. Man was created in the image of God to glorify him. To glorify means to reflect God. Instead, sinful men desired a name for themselves to reflect themselves rather than God. But God, in the end, fulfills his will, confuses their languages, and scatters them so his will will be done. Verse 9. In the end, they did exactly what God ordered them to do (laughs) through divine judgment. Secondly, people are sinners, it's true, but God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In the confusion of languages, God scattered men. God created people to glorify him to reflect him, but they used their language to unite against him. And it was their power to rebel, but God's will will be done even with the languages of men, which at one time caused them to scatter. Follow my train of thought here. One day in heaven, gathered around his throne, all men will lift up their voices in their own languages. This is just so amazing, people. We don't all drift into one language again. There are multiple languages. There are still ethnicities. There are still nations in the eternal state. But somehow or other, I've got to believe, we're all going to have a a gene or something that allows us to understand one another. (laughs) But there's still going to be these divisions. But they're not going to be divisions in opposition to God. And truly, they will glorify him, even as we read in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, where John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, and they were from every nation, and all tribes, and all peoples, and all tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what we have to look forward to. He will reign over heaven and earth and over all the people on the earth, and he will receive the glory that's due his name through all their languages as they praise his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. And as hard as it is to learn other languages, we thank you for the diversity of languages and the diversity of ethnicities because they all reflect back to you. Because you are glorious. I'm so glad that there are so many different flowers in the world that bring much beauty, even as there are so many different ethnicities and peoples and languages And they bring much beauty and show your magnificence, not ours. Father, may we humble ourselves and and walk humbly with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.